Welcome to the Digital Families Podcast. I'm Leonie Smith, sometimes known as the Cyber Safety Lady. I'm a cyber safety educator and this podcast is all about learning how to use the digital technology in our homes with more safety and balance. My guest today is Sonia Livingston. She's a professor at the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics and Political Science. She's also the author of 20 books, 20 20 books on media audiences, especially children and young people's risks and opportunities, media literacy and rights in the digital environment. Her latest book is Parenting for a Digital Future, How Hopes and Fears About Technology Shape Children's Lives. She's someone I've been following uh, quite a lot over the last couple of years and uh, keeping an eye on her research. Sonia, welcome to the Digital Families Podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. All the way from the UK, I should add as well. And it's uh, early your time and getting into the evening my time. Right. And cold here. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. Um, Sonia, tell us about your most recent research that is outlined in your book that I spent uh, all last week consuming and working through. Uh, what was the premise of the research? What questions did you ask? Mm. Well, we really wanted in this book, um, I should say my co-author Alicia Blumross and I, we really wanted mm. to get a, an understanding of the parents' perspective on dilemmas that are often discussed in the media and in social media um, all the time about um, screen time, uh, how much digital media is okay, what are the risks, what are the opportunities, why should everyone be getting digital? And we kind of knew that parents were really thinking about this, really concerned about it, um, but people didn't very often ask parents kind of directly, so what are their perspectives and how do they see it? And so it is a, it is a book that tries to kind of capture parents' voice. Uh, and we do so not just to kind of focus on the here and now, but try to kind of see where all these dilemmas and concerns fit within the longer time frame. So we ask parents to look back at their childhood and see how, remember how they were parented and how that guides their parenting now. And then we also ask them to look to the future and see where they think uh, all the dilemmas and decisions that they're kind of facing now, what, what, how, how they think about the consequences those might have. Yeah, well, um, your research was, of course, conducted in the UK, um, which yeah. has slightly different issues um, from our experience here in Australia. And I, I picked that up through the book and was yeah. sort of translating some of the things that I was reading into what was going on here and wondering if some of the research applied. And... Um, there are certainly huge issues of accessibility amongst families that you highlighted in your in your research, which happens here as well. I'm aware of that just from my own um, experience in the role that I do um, and some of the research, but there hasn't been a lot of research, I don't believe, in that area over here in Australia. Can you take us through some of the findings that you and your colleague discovered in regards to inequities on digital technology and how it impacts children's learning and their future lives. Delighted, yes. I think um, it was really important also for us to um, recognise all the differences in diversity and inequalities that divide parents because they are often kind of lumped together as if they're just parents, they're all, they're all the same. Uh, and as you say, when we did the research in London, we 
um, we really kind of tried to go out and meet parents from incredibly different backgrounds and kind of capture that diversity. But of course, what we caught was the diversity of um, a British city and also a global city. Um, so in Britain, the diversity is around, um, you know, particular kinds of um, ethnic mix and kind of histories of migration. Uh, and also, you know, we have very poor folk in London and we also have incredibly rich. So we had these kind of, you know, we, we, we visited families living in kind of gated communities with beautiful furniture and the very latest technology. And then more poignantly, uh, families living in very kind of crowded spaces with um, broken technology and struggles with connectivity and um, often difficulties in understanding the culture and speaking um, the dominant language of English. So I do think of those parents as in, in a way telling the story of London, but in a way um, inequalities are everywhere. It's just that mm. you know, I look forward to hearing a bit from you about the, the, the particular kinds of, of inequalities and struggles that Australia faces. Um, but I think that the, the sense of inequality itself um, and the importance of inequality itself uh, is part of the problem because it's knowing, you know, for the poorer families, it's knowing that other children have such fabulous technological opportunities uh, that creates a lot of the pressure on those poorer families and the sense that they are failing their children in not providing the kinds of connection. So what we saw um, in the in the less advantaged families was a, a kind of disproportionate effort. You know, they would spend so much money on trying to get um, a functioning digital device and uh, sufficient connectivity for their child. And in kind of rearranging the home to make space for a, a bit of a learning space um, for, for their child to, to, to use the technology to support their schoolwork. Um, and that would be disproportionate in their time and their effort and their money, um, but all their effort didn't always pay off. So it would often be um, very frustrating for them because they wouldn't have resources to help them fix the technology or pay for it to get fixed or know who to turn to when, when stuff was difficult to use. And technology, as we know, is difficult um, mm. to use. Uh, so I, I think ultimately we, we it, it's kind of a story about how the less advantaged are feeling left behind, struggling so hard to keep up, finding that struggle not very well supported by the wider society um, or not even very well understood by the wider society who often kind of sees them as you know, not doing the right things at home, not giving their children the, the support and attention that they need. Um, but sometimes uh, also stories of hope, you know, children who would kind of find their way to the school coding club or find their way to make the, the tech work. Um, and uh, it does seem that technology offers a kind of pathway to some of those families to future employment that might not be otherwise available to them. You know, it does offer a kind of a new route. Maybe they don't have um, as many books at home and maybe they're not as confident of getting their children into the you know the better schools but they really hope that it is going to be a digital future and getting the digital skills which children can learn themselves in many ways by tinkering and you know playing around at home maybe that can get them somewhere that uh, they wouldn't otherwise get and that's a really big hope we saw especially amongst migrant families 
One of the things that I notice with the work that I do is that there's a question I always ask every uh, class of students before I start. Are you the, the digital um, expert in your family? Are you the tech head in your family? And at least 80% of the kids will put their hands up. And what that tells me is that uh, children really are taking on that role in family. So what you're saying there about the inequities between them, the other thing that I, I noticed and you will have noticed as well is that if any sort of messages go home from school to families where English is not the first language and they're really struggling to understand, the child then has to interpret for the parent the messages coming from school about technology and sometimes they edit it. <laughs> Right, right. So the sometimes those are disciplinary messages. Sometimes those right. are, the child has been bad or not get the grades, but the child has got to deliver the message. That's right. So it puts the child in a really unfortunate position. I mean, in some ways, as you said, it's really good. It gives the child the opportunity to get um, to have advantages and to get opportunities. But at the other side of things, it further disadvantages parents. And one of the things I picked up in your book that was very strong was how disadvantaged parents felt at being kept out of the loop in many cases. So even well-educated families, when they were asked, how much do you know about what your child does at school, would say, I have no idea because I'm not kept in the loop. I'm not informed. Um, is this also adding to the pressure that parents and, and find that they're being asked, as you said, to continue to upskill their their, their um, awareness of technology and be educated, but they're so far out of the loop that they don't know what they don't know. So when they're, for instance, perhaps suggested come along to a technology night and see what's going on, they they are almost a little bit sort of daunted by the aspect, and so a lot of them don't show up. Is that something that you also right. found? And I know that from the the educator side, from the teacher side, they say, you know, well, we we try, we we reach out, we hold these parent evenings, and the and the parents don't turn up for the for the event. Um, and so I know that teachers can be frustrated by that. But it was very interesting just being with the parents. Um, you know, at kind of school pick up and drop off or going with them and kind of seeing um, as they collect them, their child from the coding club and just noting um, all the kind of tiny little ways in which parents found it too hard to make that contact with the teacher to know what was happening in the class or work out how they could help their child. So, you know, just too many people at pick up and drop off. So the, the, the shy parent or the parent not sure of their English would kind of fall um, to the back. Um, or uh, the software that might get used in the coding club that more privileged parents could buy and use at home. And then they could see what their child did and understood, understand it and know the right questions to ask of the teacher. But the poorer family couldn't get that software or mm. make it work on the device. And so they didn't feel they had the right questions. Um, and, and even kind of very basic things like I, I was, you know, we saw so many parents, as it were, try to continue the learning that a child would have with technology in the school day when they were at home, you know, and try to, you know, try to kind of find ways of making the learning stretch around the clock so that they could play a role and it could, their child's own interest in, in, in digital technology could be kind of supported at home. But for teachers, um, I, I think there's often a kind of desire to... Um, in a way, a well-meant desire to 
equalize things among the class by kind of keeping everything within the school. You know, if we do it within the school, we know they've all got the same teaching and that's kind of fair, but it means that the parents desire to extend that learning at home and um, buy the same software and um, ask questions about it and get engaged, that kind of gets cut off. Um, and, and so parents would sort of want to, want to share what they were doing with their child at home and that there aren't moments when, when parent and teacher kind of really come together, especially if there are class barriers, cultural barriers, language barriers, just, just sheer you know, lack of time for those conversations. Um, so we had, think, a, we, yeah. well, we had a survey done recently here by the eSafety Commissioner that had very high percentage of parents who wanted to get that education, to learn more. But when um, they they talked about the opportunities that they took to do that, whether it's going to a website to find that education or going to a school, which is primarily how they got that education via the school, whether it's through newsletters or through talks or whatever, as you said before, didn't show up. And it's one of the big questions that we have over here about trying to educate parents because we know they're the gatekeepers at home. And what you're saying now about the fact that they can't be part of their child's learning. I wonder if also that has to do with a level of um, risk and safety as well. So within the school environment where there are set filters at school to protect children, where there are educated um, classrooms with, with, with teachers in them, keeping those children safe. And then the I, I know from a lot of parents who talk to me who would be interested, for instance, looking at the educational version of, of Minecraft, they don't have access to that outside of school and they fear greatly about what their child's experience might be on Minecraft outside of that safety and that safe environment. No, I, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And um, parents are, of course, uh, really concerned about the, the risks uh, of harm to children, um, especially online. So it, it is hard for them to kind of know where to turn. And I know there's lots of um, uh, organizations and children's charities and and of course your um, e-safety office trying to provide that information but what's striking I think you, you must have heard this when you talk to parents is they really do want that guidance to come from the school because that's mm. the kind of trusted place and that's the place that they feel understands their child um, and I know schools try but um, it's, you know, it's an added burden on them. They don't always feel it's their job to provide for learning in the home as well as the day job of, of, of learning in the school. I, I, if I just add one other thing from the research, I, I, we did get a sense uh, from the parents that a lot of the advice they do get about uh, risk and safety is, as it were, kind of directed towards the typical parent and no parent considers themselves typical you know so we 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 had you know we interviewed parents um uh who were themselves like really geeky and knew a lot about technology and so mm. they felt they were being patronized by the school guidance which they did still need or we have parents who were trying to maintain a particular kind of religious um uh or uh ethnic culture at home who felt that their particular values weren't being addressed in that advice mm. um mm. Or we had, you know, kind of, um, you know, parents who were uh, facing uh, family tensions or breakdown um, uh, and all those pictures of the kind of the happy family that you get in, in safety advice with the, the happy nuclear family, you know, it doesn't mm. resonate. Um, 
uh, I've become very sensitized to pictures of families and notice how much safety guidance portrays very happy nuclear families in enormous kind of wealthy middle-class homes. And, you know, I think we could do more, um, those of us working on the, on the kind of safety advice side, um, to, you know, to speak to the diversity of families and to kind of resonate with their different concerns and interests. I think that's why it's important to have so many different people presenting um, mm. safety uh, education. Because if you look at different people's backgrounds, we don't have enough people in diverse communities presenting um, to be able to address those particular issues. Um, it's something that I picked up a lot over the years of doing what I've been doing is the diversity in the family situation, which is why I got my husband, who's a family mediator, to create a course for, he usually deals with separated families. Um, but the same issues in separated families can happen in together families where parents have completely different ideas about how to run the technology in their home because of the amount of questions I was getting from parents who said, well, I have this set of standards at my home, but the other party, and it could be grandparents, have completely different and how do I deal with that and it's a whole sort of other issue but one of the things that I noticed in your book that was really strongly highlighted was that there's enormous focus on children being educated online which is fantastic but they still need parent supervision to because you can tell their kids they're going to try and get around you know all the things and try things out but I think the emphasis on on parents and this is highlighted in your book at almost being blamed uh, by many uh, different experts for not doing their part, they're not educated enough, they're avoiding education, is really harsh. And although it's a much harder issue and a longer process, we have to start turning the onus onto the technology companies to make, to co protect consumers. Um, am I completely deluded in imagining there should be a world where consumers on technology have the same uh, rights as they do on other sorts of technology. For instance, you know, you buy a washing machine, you don't expect to have to get into the back of it to fix it to make sure it doesn't blow up. Um, I know it's very complex. I know there are so many uh, laws that are sort of almost preventing that at the moment. But I think it's really, really unfair to continue to put this enormous amount of parents pressure on parents in this area, and they're not expected to do that in any other area. Right, no, I completely agree. It's um, the technology is so far from plug and play, and um, there is something about society's attitude to parents that says when something's um, complicated, um, it is your responsibility to fix it, uh, to to understand it, and to kind of navigate it, manage it, and then then it kind of comes with this sense of blame. You know, you're a bad parent if you if you can't manage it, and. You know, we interviewed lots of parents who did introduce themselves to us as bad parents. I know I shouldn't let them use this, but I haven't mm. figured out how to put the filter on. Or I know I ought to be able to kind of control this or limit this, whatever it is, but I don't actually really understand what they're playing or how it works. And it is a huge barrier for parents. Uh, and as you say, we don't we don't have this with the washing machine or the microwave. Um, so. Yes, I think we should absolutely be demanding of technology companies that they make it much more straightforward and also that they make the choices much clearer because a lot of the time <laughs> we're asking parents to 
you know, understand something where they actually have no choice. Mm. You know, I think the whole issue of privacy and data is like that, is we're always saying, mm. do you want cookies? Do you want to give your... But there's no choice. You, you know, you have to do it. So Absolutely. I totally agree with you. It's that whole dark patterning thing that happens where the, you know, the button to say yes is much <laughs> brighter than the button to say no. And you have to be able to make an informed choice. And you know, it's an enormous ask to say to parents, oh, you know, they'll often the big companies will say, we provide information for parents on our website. But they to actually read through that information um, means you have to have a level of understanding already to be able to process what you're reading. Right. So th this feeds into the another aspect of your book, which is about, and something that I, I know that you, you're very passionate about, which is the rights of the child. So the rights of the child to be able to take advantage of technology in, in the internet, which is primarily designed for adults, not for children. And if there are any sort of... Uh, apps or platforms that kids are using they're generally designed for adults which puts them at risk from other adults and lack of supervision and all those things um, and my understanding has always been that the technology companies don't see a profit in actually designing things for children because they can't use their data for marketing and there's an enormous risk for these companies to say that a, a platform is safe for a child if it is not so how does the rights of the child how important are the rights of the child and how can we use the rights of the child perhaps to pressure these companies to provide safe places for children to play because the majority of users of the internet are children <laughs> and they're being forced to yeah. use adult platforms or platforms that are designed for teenagers in order to play and communicate online it's incredibly unfair so I, I could not agree with you more. And um, I've been thinking a lot about this. I, there are two analogies I'm interested in. One is where did children play before the internet? And they played in public parks. They played in, in playgrounds. They played in the street um, often, um, all kinds. And they, you know, so, so those places were partly provided by public funding, the park, and partly through state regulation, the street. Now, streets are no longer as safe as they used to be. Children aren't allowed to play there very much anymore. Parks are being cut, um, at least in Britain, um, funding public parks. Um, but the idea was it was that mix of recognised public spaces for children, funded by the public purse, and kind of regulation of other spaces to make it sufficiently safe. As well as TV, regulations and, and, on TV. And TV, you know, in, in, in at least your country and mine, includes public service broadcasting, which again um, is publicly funded. So when we come to the internet, we've created this space that is pretty much corporate funded, commercially funded, and with very little regulations. It doesn't have either of those things that we're used to. So children are playing in the same places, as you say, that everyone else is, and it's problematic. So we do need regulation and we do need public funding. Uh, and I think those, it, it is a bit of a puzzle to me why companies say it's not worth our while to create businesses for, you know, the toy business is a huge market for children. Mm. Um, and uh, we have always had commercial television for children. So there is a market for children with, you know, a level of advertising that is contextual, not based on personal data. That has been a market. So 
it's not, you know, I'm I'm not a business specialist, I'm a psychologist, but it does, it does puzzle me a bit that they say there's no market for children in content provision, but there is in the toy industry or the book industry or the comic industry or anyway. Um, what what I also would say about the internet is that there is lots of public and um uh kind of, you know, lots of organizations do provide great content for children. Museums do, libraries do, um, uh, lots of kind of little NGOs do. Um, teachers get together and create great content for children. You know, there are lots of things there. There are, yeah. parents can't find them and children mm. don't find them. And they all gravitate to, you know, YouTube or whatever it is that everyone seems to be at. And they don't, yeah. so we can also do something about making that other good stuff more easily findable and accessible, I think. Well, one of the things about YouTube is that they developed YouTube Kids. Yes. And yeah. they were almost fined into doing that. <laughs> but mm -hmm. they're not using the technology well enough to really make YouTube Kids very popular. So there's only a very, very small amount of children that are using YouTube Kids. And again, to set up uh, an account on YouTube Kids for a parent is very complex if you want to lock it all down because when it initially started, of course, pornography showed up on YouTube Kids from day one because that's what happens. Um, and in my mind, these some of the smartest people in the world running Google. They have got Google, YouTube, the adult version, is absolutely full of fantastic kids stuff whether it's maker stuff, whether it's cartoons, whether it's playthrough gaming and all that kind of stuff. And some of it gets through to YouTube kids. Why couldn't they have it so that if a child's looking for Peppa, Peppa Pig on yeah. the main area of YouTube, that it immediately flips them over to uh -huh. YouTube kids yeah. and that's where they go. That yeah, there is I no real child content on there that doesn't get diverted over to that app. Now, surely they could do that. I, I think there are so many things that they could do. I completely agree. If if all the content on YouTube Kids is also on the main YouTube, then kids will go to YouTube and they won't go to YouTube Kids. So yeah, yes, right. we need to build. And if someone is searching for Peppa Pig, you know, they're probably under eight years old and <laughs> you kind of know who they are and what they want. And you, you could, as you say, move them subtly into a kind of a safer yeah. um but also lead them somewhere because I don't want kids locked down with only Peppa Pig. You know, they, they you could then you suggest uh, you might like these other things and the suggestion, yeah, which is what they do. Yeah, but, but they then things that are are for commercial profit, not it's an, a, an enormous amount of rubbish on there, and also they they're not working um, very well at at filtering out the stuff that gets edited into that stuff. So. As far as games and things go, I look at a game like Minecraft and as a person who advises parents on, on safe places for kids to play, it's a fabulous platform right. because of all the different options that you can do. And then I look at something like Roblox, which yeah. is actually incredibly dangerous for children to use because it doesn't have single player option. It doesn't have um, a, a whitelisted server option, which is where you can all play on the one world and only allow your real friends in um, so that is promoted as being a safe place for kids to play and all you have to do is look at common sense media and see the reviews from parents of the alarming things that young children have found and as a parent myself if I 
ever thought that my eight or nine-year-old could possibly be exposed to pornography or animal cruelty or violence, there's absolutely no way I'd let allow them on any of those apps. But I think what's happening, Sonia, is that parents have a, have this generation of parents have a very different way of looking at um, harm, media harm, than say our parents did, or mm. um, even my generation of parents. They've mm. got a, a much lower bar as to potentially what their children could be exposed to, because I don't think they have any options. Well, I, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think what, what I'd say in favour of this, this generation of parents is I think they do expect to talk to their kids a lot more about what they're seeing and they kind of do mm. want to share a lot more. I mean, my parents, you know, would never have dreamt of, of sharing the media with me in that kind of way. But I think yeah. there are more parents now who are willing to kind of sit down and say, let's play this together and or let's talk about what you've seen. Or So I think there's more you know, kind of in my work, I've called that kind of enabling mediation. It's less about putting the restrictions and more about helping the child understand that world. Because what I heard from parents quite a lot is, um, yes, it's not that they don't have any choice, but they think this is the world and children, we need to give the child the tools to cope in the world rather than, as it were, shut them off from it. Obviously, it depends okay. how old the child is that we're that we're thinking about here. But um hmm. Um, but the other thing I'd say about something like Roblox is I feel I've been in this game a long time now in, in, in children's internet safety is that a new um, platform kind of suddenly becomes mainstream and then you and I and many others start saying well it needs to have this you know single player option or it needs to have these protections on who can play together and gradually the platform gets better um, but by the time it's got better, you know, that's that's a cohort of kids who've played with it in its undeveloped form. Uh, mm. And then there's a new platform in town and we all, mm. you know, kids switch and we all start trying to make that safer. Um, but it's a losing game from the point of view of, you know, kind of parent organisations and researchers, because we're always we're always trying to make safer the platform when the when the new thing is in development. And that's, yeah. I think, where regulation and that's where your you know your e-safety e um, office is so exciting actually and trying to kind of get those regulations built in in safety by yeah. design rather yeah. than you know discover the problems with the platform and then try to retrofit the solution you know yeah absolutely yeah I'm all for safety by design it drives me insane when I go onto a new platform and then find all these little holes in there and I think oh, they haven't thought of this or haven't thought of that now the screen time issues were a big uh, subject in your book and, and I'm, I'm realizing we're getting up to time here Sonia and I don't like you probably flat out with back-to-back -back zoom calls all day um, it was interesting what um, you discovered about screen time and it, it wasn't surprising to me because every time I, there's an issue of screen time that comes up in one of my talks parents just literally want a number it is so hard for them to figure out what is the right amount of screen time and in your book you came across so many parents that had different um, ideas about screen time, but they were obsessed with screen time. Can you talk a little bit more about what you discovered about parents' attitude, and this would cross all all boundaries and countries, about the yeah. issue of screen time? I, I think it, 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 I hear this everywhere in, in, in so many countries, as you say. I, I, I think two things. Firstly, because the technology is so complex, 
that that parents want that kind of simple rule. Uh, I think they want two rules. They want how many hours a day is okay, and how early? You know, can at what age can they get a mobile yes. phone? That's the other question they always ask. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a desire for simplicity uh, and a simple rule that we wouldn't ask for in relation to food or homework or maybe, well, maybe we would. <laughs> Parents face lots of complexities and they want some simple rules. Um, but what the research is showing and actually what parents' own experience shows is it depends and it depends on the quality of the screen experience. It depends on the needs of a particular child. It depends on the kind of values in a, in a particular home. So really parents were like feeling guilty that they were letting their child have too many hours on a screen. So they'd have this, they'd keep feeling guilty and shame even. But in practice, they were finding ways, lots of them, of saying, okay, well, actually more time is okay because he's just run around outside with the football, so he's allowed his downtime. Or it's okay because actually she's building something in her game that is really quite kind of geeky and creative and interesting. So, you know, so they kind of know that it is the balance of activities in a child's life that matters. Or it's the and it's the quality of the screen time that matters, but still they you know they kind of the 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 screen time rule becomes its own um, promise of a simple solution to the complexities of technology, and that's there's no there is no simple there's no sort of silver bullet solution so that's just tough. Um, maybe what also really matters for parents is. It's not just that they're being told limit screen time, deal with the risks, deal with the complexities. It's your job to keep your child safe and so on, which of course is, is parents think is right. But they're also being told, but this technology is your child's route to their future. All the jobs, you know, the job your child does in the future hasn't been invented yet. So they've got these contrary injunctions, limit your child's screen time, get your child ahead in digital skills, and in technology, because that's their path. And I think that's what makes it especially impossible for, for parents, because they can't just say, go and play outside, you know, we're gonna, we don't need this technology, because they know that the child does need the technology and does need to become adept with it, because that is the future. And that's, I think, where we need to make our guidance more um, uh, constructive, so that we don't only, and I, I like that you say this is, this is what you do, um, you know, because it's not only about limiting time, but also about really saying, well, this is the way, this would be good. This is educational, this is playful, this is safe, this is creative. So, because parents kept saying to us, okay, we, we see that it's the quality of the screen time, but where do we go? Where's the advice? You know, what is yes. good online? Yeah. And it's not easy to find that advice. No, it isn't. I mean, you can point them to common sense media or something like that, but it's like just telling to someone, just go to the library and, and have a look at all the books um, without a librarian, <laughs> perhaps. We've always had children's librarians. And we've, you know, that, that's been, and that person played such a brilliant role in saying, I think you like, you'll like this book. Or did you know there's more in that series? Or... Mm. And we, so we need we need more digital librarians, Sonia. That's what we actually need. Digital we librarians to help help parents because um, telling a parent to go to a website to learn things is it's never going to happen. That's the build it and they will come attitude, and I've never seen that. That uh, 
parents are like every other consumer. If they want to find something out, they'll generally, if they know how to, Google it. Is this right for my child or where do I find that? But yes, that is something I hear a lot of from the parents that I speak to. Where do I find good things, you know, for my child to be part of and, and all that kind of stuff. And I'll often suggest that they talk to the teachers at school who might be using some really fun things at school. But as you've pointed out in your book, that communication between the school and the parent is um, very, very difficult because... Yeah. Teachers are overworked. They have hardly any time at all to mark, you know, papers and do that sort of thing than talk to parents every afternoon on school pickup, as you were saying. I mean, that communication is really difficult. Parents, yeah. I mean, in a way, parents isn't anyone's job. I think that's the difficulty. It isn't really the teacher's job to tell parents how to parents. And there aren't the librarians in the digital world. And it isn't, you know, if the government tells parents what to do, we say this is the nanny state and they should keep out of our private lives. And they're kind mm. of, you know, there sort of isn't anyone who, but parents are looking for somewhere to turn to and someone they can trust who can give them that, you know, kind of channel them into a, a better digital future, but they don't know where to go. Exactly. So there's a lot of dilemmas in, in what you discovered yeah. through your, your research, um, which was obviously, as you said, based around, you know, parenting in the digital age. Um, if when you look at the results of all the research and, and the book, Sonia, and um, can you summarise your conclusions about what you think needs to happen in order to make it easier for parents to parent in this digital age? Well, perhaps one overriding message in the book is to find a way, society should find a way to uh, reduce the burden on parents to worry about the risk all the time by making the digital world less risky and mm -hmm. shift the conversation towards um, thinking about what's good and what's positive and where do we want our children to be because if children are moving in a positive direction and have got great content to engage with and better places to be they will just encounter fewer risks and they will develop more skills to navigate them when they do anyway. But we mm. need a positive vision and we don't yet have that positive vision where all a bit dystopian and fearful about what tech is doing to our children. And also very separate in different worlds. I just heard this morning that I think uh, Ireland are now going, uh, have appointed a e-safety commissioner as well. So... Maybe the oh, UK, I, UK will be next. <laughs> UK is about to come out with some regulation on online harms. Um, and I think we are, we are moving, uh, but maybe a little more slowly than you guys. It's been lovely talking to you, Sonia. Where can people um, uh, get your book and find out more about your research, your 20 books that you have? <laughs> You've <laughs> thank, you. thank you. It's been lovely to talk to you. Um, I would say visit my blog at parenting.digital. Fantastic. And I'll put all the links in the in the blog post. It's been lovely talking to you, Sonia. Have a lovely day over there in the UK and stay safe thank and you. well. Um, and have a Merry Christmas if that's what you're into or have a happy holiday, whatever it is that's coming up in another couple of weeks. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you.